This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. For our topic today, we're going to tackle the simple question of life. Okay, I know. It's not such a simple question, and in fact, it often gathers more questions than answers when you start studying living things. Take, for example, the question my guest posed as part of his recent lecture for the Beyond Center at ASU. The question was, would life on other planets be anything like us? Joining me today is biochemist and author Nick Lane. He holds the position of Reader in Evolutionary Biochemistry in the Department of Genetics, Evolution, and Environment at University College London. Nick also leads the Research Frontiers Origins of Life program and is a founding member of the Consortium for Mitochondrial Research, also at University College London. Along with his research, Nick has authored a collection of popular science books, including his recent publication, The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way it Is? Nick Lane, thank you very much for taking time out to join me on Ask a Biologist. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's start off with what I was talking about at the beginning of the show. And the full title is The Sex of Aliens. Mm -hmm. Would life on other planets be anything like us? And so the question is, would it? Well, I think it would, but at least in a in a kind of a superficial way, it might not. But in a deeper way, I think it would be very similar to us. So we can imagine all kinds of weird aliens, but whether they behave like us, whether they communicate in a similar way, whether they're sexual, whether they have two different sexes, those kind of questions are the ones that we see that on Earth. We look at plants. Plants have two different sexes. Some fungi have 10,000 different sexes, and we can't understand really what's going on there at all, but most of them still have really only two sexes. So there's these themes that we see in life on Earth, and the question is, well, would we see something similar on other planets? For example, anybody who spends much time with Ask a Biologist or in the world of biology knows we are carbon-based. Yeah. Would life on other planets be carbon-based? Well, I think it would be, yes, almost certainly. Not necessarily every time. I mean, you could say that this is a lack of imagination that we can't imagine. As we're earthbound biologists, we see everything around us is made of carbon. So we think life elsewhere has to be made of carbon. And that may seem like a real lack of imagination. But if you think about why carbon is good, there's some really good reasons why life here is, is made of carbon. I mean, one of them is it's really common. You get carbon just about everywhere in the universe, far more common than silicon. It might not seem like that way on Earth with all these rocks around us and life seems like a small part of that, but actually there's more carbon even here than there is silicon. So that's one thing, it's really common. And then another one is it's really good at its job. So it forms strong bonds with other atoms and it can make really large molecules like DNA, the, the genetic code, which is an enormously long molecule. And you can never do anything like that with silicon or really any other atom that we know about. Let me just yeah. interject here that DNA, one of the interesting things about, well, deoxyribonucleic acid, you know, it's such a mouthful. We always change it down to DNA. DNA. But that's the blueprint and the instruction set for all living things. That's right. Yeah. And that's impressive. Again, it's one of those things that you think, well, would life somewhere else have something like DNA or would it be completely different? And we don't know is the simple answer to that. But DNA, again, is really good at what it does. It's an incredibly stable molecule. And there's other molecules as well, which are a bit like DNA. We call it RNA. That stands for ribonucleic acid. 
And it's just really one atom different. That's practically it. One oxygen atom is extra in the RNA compared to DNA. And instead of forming this long double helix, which is amazingly stable and which can code for a human being, it forms these contorted, twisted up little molecules that are far more reactive and unstable. And they can code for a virus like the HIV virus that causes AIDS, but really nothing bigger or more complex than that. So DNA, again, is really good at what it does. It wouldn't be very surprising if on other planets we found something, if not exactly the same, at least quite similar. All right, so we've got carbon, and very likely it's out there in these alien worlds. What about water? It's a strange thing, but we really don't know why water is so important, or even if it is important. And most biologists think that it probably really is important. I remember going to a conference uh, at the Royal Society in London, and it was three days long, and it was about why does life use water? And at the end of three days of all these biologists and chemists arguing with each other, the answer was, we don't know. (laughs) So we really don't know. But one thing we can say is that it's really common. Again, you find it right across the universe. And the other thing is it does have some amazing properties. And those amazing properties, really very few other molecules have the same properties. So carbon compounds, if life needs carbon, these these carbon compounds, well, some of them dissolve, some of them make membranes and interesting shapes and structures and things in the water. So the combination of those two things, again, it just works really well. Yeah, you're talking about membranes. And if we talk about those, then we're going to be talking about cells. We often talk about cells as the, the smallest unit of life. And all cells will have some form of a membrane. So we have these membranes. We have cells. Do we have to have cells to have life? You can imagine life that doesn't have cells. So, I mean, viruses are not cells, but they can't replicate themselves unless they infect a cell and then they use all the machinery in the cell to make copies of themselves. And then there are all kinds of other weird things like jumping genes, for example. They're actually called retrotransposons, but jumping genes is a much better term. And they would jump around, literally. They copy themselves and right across... The whole genome, all of the DNA of of a cell, they can hop around and make copies of themselves. So are they alive? It's hard to say, but they need a cell to operate in. So I, I think, yes, life really does need cells, certainly from life on Earth. Everything that we know that we could say that's alive for sure is a cell. So I introduced you as a biochemist at the beginning of the show, and that's I would say, I don't even know if I'm going to say this is going to be your day job, (laughs) but you also are an author of multiple books, and the latest one is called The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way It Is? That was the English subtitle, Why is Life the Way It Is? The American subtitle was more descriptive, and and that was uh, Energy evolution and the origins of complex life. So that's a slightly different title. So why is life the way it is? Well, it comes down to energy, I think. There's no agreement about these questions in science. That's one of the great things about science is that people disagree with each other. And those disagreements are based on knowledge and they're based on experiments and they're based on changing your mind as you find out more information and you learn things. And every good scientist should be willing and ready to change their mind when facts no longer support what they think. So what I think is that energy is 
not exactly forgotten, but we've spent so long thinking about genes and information for very understandable reasons because we get so much information from genes. It's such a good way of looking at how life evolved and came to be as it is that we've almost forgotten that cells are more than just the genes. And one of the most important things about cells is the way that they get the energy to make copies of themselves at all, to make all these proteins and all the DNA and all the membranes that make up a cell, all the parts of a cell, it all needs energy. And every time a cell divides in two to make daughter cells, it needs energy all the time. And the strange thing is, is that it's not just any old kind of energy. It's a kind of a force field that around the cell. It's an electrical charge, which is amazingly strong. It's like the same strength as a bolt of lightning it's a 30 million volts per meter is the strength. If you were to shrink yourself down to the size of a molecule, really tiny, then that's the strength that you would feel if you were next to the force field that surrounds just a bacterial cell. So the moral of the story is if you shrink down, you better be ready. <laughs> You're going to get zapped. Because I brought up the book, uh -huh. part of the reason is because I have the book here. And Thank you. I was hoping I could get you to read one section. Sure. Do you have a section in mind? I do. I have one paragraph that I'd like you to read. And once you're finished, I think you'll see why I brought it up. Because this is one of the most popular questions that comes in to ask a biologist. Mm. Okay. It is a cold killer with a calculated cunning honed over millions of generations. It can interfere with the sophisticated immune surveillance machinery of an organism, melting unobtrusively into the background like a double agent. It can recognise proteins on the cell surface and lock onto them as if it were an insider, gaining entrance to the inner sanctum. It can home in unerringly on the nucleus and incorporate itself into a host cell's DNA. Sometimes it remains there in hiding for years, invisible to all around. On other occasions, it takes over without delay, sabotaging the host cell's biochemical machinery, making thousands upon thousands of copies of itself. It dresses up these copies in a camouflaged tunic of lipids and proteins, ships them to the surface, and bursts out to begin another round of guile and destruction. It can kill a human being cell by cell, person by person, in devastating epidemics, or dissolve entire oceanic blooms extending over hundreds of miles, overnight. Yet most biologists would not even classify it as alive. The virus itself doesn't care. <laughs> All right. So now that's the theme. Viruses. Okay. Living or non-living? I think they're living. And I used to think that they weren't living. I've changed my mind on that one. And the reason that people can't agree about it is that viruses don't have a metabolism of their own. They can't produce energy of their own and they can't make copies of themselves except when they take over another cell. And so any definition of life, and there's lots and lots of really bad definitions of life, no one can agree about a good definition of life, but almost every one includes metabolism, activity, some ability to convert raw materials in the environment into energy to make copies of yourself. And viruses can't do that. So from that point of view, it seems as if they're not living. And yet you see pictures of these things and they're, they're like a lunar lander or something. They're amazing structures that 
well, they look designed, and design is a bad word in biology, but it's also it's a key in biology because life looks so designed and viruses look designed in the same way. And there doesn't have to be a designer, they just look designed. And so the question is, well, how did they get to be that way if they're not alive? And the other thing about viruses is that they behave really maliciously. They really look as if they've got it in for whatever cell it is that they're attacking and they behave with an incredible ingenuity and again that's a kind of a trait of life it's difficult to say that this is a definition it's just that they look they smell alive to us as biologists I I don't know what you think do you think viruses are alive I'm one of those that the way I classify it is when they're outside of a cell they're just a complex molecule and I just don't consider them living but once they get inside the cell then, of course, they're fully armed, and then I do say they're living. So I'm kind of skirting the issue there because I'm saying outside the cell, you're a complex molecule. Inside the cell, yes, you have one of the most important traits, and that's being able to replicate yourself. Mm. Now the reason I think that I would describe them as alive is that they are exploiting their environment to make copies of themselves, and that's what all life does. Even plants, they need water and they need carbon dioxide from the air and they need photons of light from the sun. They need those things. If you deprive them of those things, they're going to die. And we need to eat and we need to breathe. And so we all exploit the environment around us. And the more complex an organism is, the simpler the environment can be that it exploits. So we don't need very much beyond food and oxygen because we're already very complex. And plants need even less because in their biochemistry, in their cells, they're even more complex than we are. Viruses are incredibly simple, but they exploit an amazingly complex environment. They exploit the insides of other cells. So they're exploiting their environment. They're using it to make copies of themselves. So if you think of life as the ability to make copies of yourself by exploiting the environment, then viruses are alive by that definition. Okay. So once I'm inside a cell, I'm going to agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, speaking of viruses and cells, which came first? Nobody knows. I think they could have arisen at about the same time, in fact. There's a problem if you're not a cell, which is that... What tends to happen is that if you've got things like viruses, if you've got effectively, let's call them living things, let's imagine that they're living things, but they're just bits of DNA, they're kind of bits of code, and all they want to do is make copies of themselves. They don't care about anything else. They just want to churn out furious copy after copy after copy. The problem is that it's the fastest replicators that always win. And so the ones which are a bit smaller and a bit simpler tend to make more copies of themselves than the slightly bigger ones, which are slower and more laborious. And so any system which doesn't have cells in tends to die out because the parasites take over and they they copy themselves until they've exploited all the resources and then everything dies and that's the end. And so it's a very, very unstable system. Now, what cells do is they trap these replicators inside the same space. So their fate is linked. And as soon as their fate is linked, then one which specializes to say, okay, I'm going to do this thing for for the cell as a whole, and another one does something else for the cell as a whole. And then together, by collaborating because their fate is shared, then they are able to begin to encode things other than replication speed. They can begin to convert the environment into copies of a cell And that's metabolism. That's the beginning of metabolism. You need a cell for metabolism. And so really for life, the cell has to come first. 
you know, we're talking about viruses and so this gets us into the immune system. For mm-hmm. And uh, on Ask a Biologist, we have a really fun uh, comic book actually out there called Viral Attack. And it's a great way to learn about the roles of the different cells because there are cells specifically in our body that are trained to seek out and destroy viruses, mm-hmm. also bacteria, yep. bad bacteria. I mean, I always have to be careful about that because a lot of people just think all bacteria, <laughs> all bacteria are bacteria bad, bad, right? And actually, we wouldn't be alive without bacteria. So with that said, I'm really curious about the role of the cells themselves in complex organisms and how they've learned to basically defend against these invaders. Well, they do it by recognizing them, and that's an amazing feat because what they do is they combine different bits and pieces of genes together. And by doing that, they're able to come up with an amazing array of billions and billions of different types of protein that are able to recognize. So almost any bacteria or any virus or anything which has got a protein, the immune system is able to come up with something which is going to recognize it and bind to it and activate that immune cell. So when an immune cell recognizes a bit of a virus, a bit of a protein on the surface of the virus, then it activates the whole cell and that cell then makes copies and copies of itself and they will target that virus and try to break it down. Right. And the other thing we've done today is that where the role of the vaccine is basically to build up those cells and basically get them knowing the most wanted list. Yes. Right? You know, you can imagine the poster, the the wanted poster. And we basically jumpstart that so that they don't have to learn and build up that army of cells that can attack those viruses. They're ready to go. For example, the flu vaccine we get every year. And the question is, why do we have to keep getting different ones? Well, different... that's because the flu itself keeps on changing. It keeps mutating and evolving and changing its proteins. And then it's doing that all the time. And we can't stop that happening. That's evolution. In fact, this is probably... From our own lives' point of view, this is the easiest way to see evolution in action. It's how viruses change, and they change really quickly. In the space of a few years, the viruses have changed almost beyond belief. Even the cold virus, you know, you yeah. say the common cold, it's not that common. <laughs> there are a lot of viruses out yeah. there that are all classified as a cold. And if it was common and simple, we probably would have something that would help us exactly, battle yes. these colds when we get them. Speaking of which, I have one today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While we're in the cell... There's a, an area that I know that's kind of near and dear to you. Inside the cell, we have lots of parts. Yep. And uh, they're called organelles, mm-hmm. which means tiny organs. There's one in particular called the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. And when you're learning about the cell, one of the neat things about the mitochondria is it's basically the powerhouse. Exactly. Yes. That's back to your energy story. Exactly, right? yes. But the mitochondria wasn't always in the cell. No, the mitochondria were cells themselves once. They were bacteria. And uh, we know this because they still have some of their own DNA, some of their own genes, encoding bits and pieces of information about how do you generate energy right there on the spot. So, and they still behave in some ways a little bit like bacteria. So when they divide themselves in half, they do it pretty much the same way that bacteria do it as well. So there's, antibiotics can affect our mitochondria too. Uh, for the same reason that they affect bacteria. So 
we know that they were bacteria once, but we don't know exactly what was going on because this was two billion years ago. And again, in science, there are arguments about everything. And eventually, we'll come to an answer that people can agree is the right kind of answer, even if it's not exactly correct. But at the moment, we're still in the midst of a, let's call it a power struggle, because these are the power houses of the cells. We don't know exactly what kind of bacteria they were. And that matters because they had a relationship with another type of cell, which was our own type of cell that acquired these bacteria. And we don't agree among ourselves what kind of a cell that was either. It could have been really simple. I think it was really simple, very much like another bacterium. Other people think it was already quite a complex cell. And the difference, it may sound trivial, but the difference is quite important because if it was already a complex cell, then that means it could do a lot of evolution without all the energy needed. And so the people who think that it was a complex cell already think that evolution is going to happen. It, the energy doesn't matter very much. But it's a small part of the overall picture, and it's the genes that really matter. And I see it the other way around to that, because the thing which is really fascinating is that bacteria just stay bacterial. They arose 4 billion years ago. That's an incomprehensible amount of time. And if you look at a bacteria from 4 billion years ago and you look at a bacteria today, it's the same. In their appearance, they're tiny, they're morphologically very simple. In their biochemistry, they're complex. But in their appearance, they're really simple. And so they don't have any tendency to become large and complex and turn into a human being or something. I think that the key moment was when we acquired the bacteria that became our mitochondria, and that gave our type of cell... We call them eukaryotic cell, which that just means a true kernel. And a kernel is the nucleus where we put all our DNA, like a nut at the heart of the cell. When we acquired the mitochondria, we got so much energy with that because what we did really was we had lots and lots of, of powerhouses internalized, all which became very specialized just to produce energy for this cell. And so we could swell up the number of genes we have and become large and complex. So I think the turning point in all of evolution was the acquisition of mitochondria. And so for the bacteria that are the same as they were 4 billion years ago, basically, I think you said they were stuck in a rut. Yeah. At the level of their biochemistry, how cells actually work, the proteins that they have, the functions that they do, they're incredibly complex, far more complex than we are, but they remain tiny. Although they can exploit all of these different environments, they never became large and complex as organisms. There are no bacterial people or bacterial plants or bacterial fungi. They just don't exist. So, yeah, they've stayed stuck the way they were four billion years ago. They didn't change. So on Ask a Biologist, none of my biologists or scientists get out of here without answering three questions. Mm -hmm. So you ready? I'm ready. When did you first know you wanted to be a scientist? Ooh, um, probably when I was about 15 or 16. Before that, I don't really remember very well. I mean, I love science, but I loved all kinds of other things as well. I started reading books around 15 or 16 popular science books. And I didn't like them all necessarily, but I remember reading Richard Dawkins at that time, The Selfish Gene, and I really hated the book. But it really forced me to think completely differently about what I thought life was about. And that's a really important thing. I think it was the first lesson I had as a budding scientist was to challenge the way I thought about things and try and find arguments, try and find other ways of seeing it. And now I could 
But then I didn't see many arguments against it. And I read other books. I read uh, James Watson's The Double Helix, which was a classic book. Very inspiring because it was really all about the excitement of research and the possibility of Nobel Prizes and all these kind of things that people dream about. And when you become a scientist, you stop dreaming about those things largely, but still, it's part of the excitement that drew you into science in the first place, and he captures that really well. You've had quite a career as a scientist. You've also had an amazing career as a writer. What got you started writing? Well, it's a strange story. I ended a competition, a writing competition, when I was uh, doing my PhD. And I'd always wanted to be a writer, I think, but uh, I'd had it knocked out of me. When I finished my degree, I wrote to New Scientist and said, did you have any jobs? And they said, no, you need to get some experience, go off and work for some small journal somewhere and become an editor. And that held no appeal to me at all. I, I liked the idea of writing articles for New Scientist or Nature or someone. And so I turned my back on it and uh, went on and did the PhD. But I was encouraged by my supervisor to enter this essay writing competition, which I did. And I was a runner up. I didn't win outright, but I was one of the runners up. And so when I finished the PhD, I had it at the back of my mind that, well, maybe writing's still a possibility. And I did a, a short postdoc job in the same lab, but this is to do with kidney transplants, and I didn't feel like I was solving the problem. And I, uh, I think science is about solving problems, and if you don't know how to solve the problem, then it's time to move on to something which is more soluble, perhaps. So I knew I had to stop doing what I was doing, and I looked in the back of New Scientists as it happened, where they have jobs advertised, and I was looking for a postdoc position that was doing something that drew on my skills, but in a completely unrelated area, or writing jobs. And it turned out there were some writing jobs, and I got one. I really liked the guy who interviewed me, and um, and so I took the job, and I did that for several years, and, uh, and learned to write, really, that way. And when I say learned to write, I learned to lose myself, because I think we probably all, and probably especially me, have a tendency to overwrite, to try to be a poet, to try to use long words and, uh, and construct beautiful sentences that are difficult to read. And this was writing plain, simple English for an international readership, or in fact, a lot of the time it was actually doing video animation to try to visualize the inside of a cell, and you'd have to go step by step and say what's going on in very plain, simple English. And I learned to write simply that way. So... I'm going to take it all away from you. You can't be a scientist. Uh -huh. We know you're an author, so I'm going, to t I'm going to take away that. And just about every one of my scientists that are at a university love teaching, so I'm going to take the teaching away from you. <laughs> right, okay. What would you be or what would you do if you could do anything or be anyone? Uh, there are so many lives that you could imagine you might have led and probably you never could have done. I mean, I used to play, I do play the violin, folk music on the fiddle, much easier than the classical music. I grew up playing classical music and it was too hard for me, though I tried very, very hard at the time. And I used to think it would be great to play the violin in a pit orchestra playing Italian operas and travel around from opera house to opera house in Napoli and Rome and things like that. That would have been a nice life. But probably I was never good enough on the fiddle. Just playing Irish music on the fiddle. But the trouble with that is that you think of it as a life and immediately you think of the blind harper, O'Carolan, who ended up dying in a ditch because nobody can make much money out of playing folk music unless you're superlatively good. Other things, 
uh, I don't know. I used to work on a forestry ranch. I, all kinds of lives you could lead, I suppose. But yeah. Maybe a fiddle player. Maybe I'd have been a fiddle player. I used to do a lot of mountaineering, and that would have been another kind of a life. Not a life to make a living, but a hell of a life to lead, to travel the world and to climb the mountains. I don't know how you make a living out of that, but uh, some people do. <laughs> yep. You can be a photographer as well, along with that. Yep. I think, though, the adventure in science is as great as the adventure in any of these adventurous lives that you could choose. It's an adventurous life in itself, and that might not come across if you picture a scientist as someone in a white coat in a lab or something. It seems very unadventurous, but actually the the intellectual adventure and the the feeling that you're at the edge of what humanity knows, and maybe you can pioneer that boundary a little bit, that's an adventurous life too. And in fact, a lot of the biologists are adventurers because they're going to places in the world that a lot of people can't get to. I really wish that I did the kind of science that would take me to some of those places, and I've never managed to find an excuse to go to the <laughs> bottom of the oceans, for example. <laughs> no, you need to get to those vents, right? Yeah. The last question I have is... Um, what advice would you have for a young budding scientist? Follow what you're passionate about. Follow what you're really interested in because science is it's a very odd career, at least in England it is. I don't know how it is in the United States, but uh, this is the advice that I give to my own students when they come to me asking what they should do. Should they try and go into a field of science which looks that there's lots of funding there, for example, and there's, there's lots of jobs there. And I encourage them not to do that, but to do what they really enjoy doing most. Because in my experience, scientists just love science. They love the questions. They love the experiences. And they really, they really love kids who come with a genuine interest in what they're doing, and they want to help them. They want to kind of encourage people to go into the field that they personally find is really interesting. So if you follow what you really like yourself, the opportunities will somehow materialize. It's amazing how they do, but they do materialize for the people who are really genuinely enthusiastic about what they're doing. So follow your heart. That's my advice. On that note, I would very much like to thank you, Nick Lane, for visiting with me been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been biochemist and author Nick Lane. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about the immune system and those nasty viruses, whether they are living or not living, you can either Google the words viral attack, that should be a number one result, or just go to the web address of askabiologist.asu.edu forward slash viral dash attack. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the Grassroots Studio, housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.